0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fire to support gut health. Shop now at hero.co.
1: This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design the kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
0: Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ,
2: in the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century.
3: Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Gravity
0: Podcast. Once again, here I am, Matt Tebbe, with my friends, Ben and Christy, and we are podcasting.
3: Yes, we yeah. are.
2: Yeah. We've been doing this for a long time. It's what we it's, do. hmm Yeah. Is
0: and we uh, today we're gathering uh under the shadow of Christmas. I'm not sure Christmas really <laughs> casts a shadow, but we are approaching <laughs> Christmas. Yes. And
2: uh That's, there's a whole season that has a name. We could just call it Advent. <laughs> I don't know, Ben. The shadow <laughs> of are Christmas. Are you trying to are you trying to erase catchy. Christmas? <laughs> I don't know. I think Ben is trying to erase Christmas. Trying to erase Christmas. Uh, by suggesting you, can't say, that, you can't even say Merry Christmas anymore. Well, yeah. Ben, you can't I would say Merry Christmas Advent.
0: until Christmas. Can search okay. your heart and see if you're part of the problem, Ben. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, no, it is Advent, right. And we are yeah. approaching Christmas. So, blessed Advent to you, uh, my lady, Christy, and to you, good Thank sir. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Uh, and and to both of you, yes. A blessed uh, Advent.
0: So, uh, we have begun this practice of sharing uh, little bits, uh, quips and pithy cones, pithy things we want to share that we've
3: discovered this past week.
2: (laughs) If we call them Uh, cones, I feel like it's high pressure. It's like, well, this has to be like a very wise saying now that I have to. Mine
3: is not very wise. Well, Ben,
2: you just told people what cone
0: meant. And until then, there was no pressure because nobody knows what that means. Yeah, they were Um, thinking
2: the little traffic cones that tell you where to drive.
0: um, (laughs) Uh, I've got something I read, and this is interesting. And then, Christy, you said you have a recommendation. Yeah, an idea. An idea. So mm-hmm. here's what I read this week. I read that that song, uh, the Twelve Days of Christmas. You remember the Twelve Days of Christmas? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. First day yeah. of Christmas. Five so the birds rings. Right, right, yeah. right. <clears throat> apparently, apparently, every single thing referenced, including lords of leaping, ladies dancing, maids a milking. Mm-hmm. Apparently, all of the days are references to birds.
2: Really? They're all references to birds. They're all references to birds. I was actually thinking that there were a lot of birds involved anyway, but now it's 100% birds.
0: It's 100% birds. This guy has a bird fetish and he will not quit (laughs) giving uh, his true love. Or, you know, this person is actually, so the song then is from the person who's gotten the gifts, right? Okay, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I think we can now... If, if they are all references to birds which uh, I have it on right. good authority uh, by the internet that it is all birds then this mm-hmm. song is a lament
2: yeah on the fr- yeah because my true love <laughs> gave to me is, this person is grieving right these fantastic gifts yeah <laughs> he's like <laughs> telling his friend he's like can you believe this <laughs> yeah. like
0: this is <laughs> my true rumors. love
2: and you know mm-hmm. what is this person doing for, for me this is crazy
0: if yeah. this is love. It's time to find something new. Time to move on. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I thought, unless you're an uh, -er, aviator aviatory. I don't think that's what it's
3: called. A bird person.
2: A bird person. There we go. (laughs) An aviator. I think that's it.
3: Isn't that somebody who
0: flies planes? (laughs) No. That's the joke.
2: Yeah. All right. (laughs)
0: Uh, So anyway, I thought that was interesting. I will never listen to that song again the same way. Mm Mm-hmm. Now I will uh, weep with those who weep. Yeah, because the love of yeah. Christ compels me. Christy, yeah. did you have a
3: recommendation? I do. Okay, so you guys know I love to dress up. I love, I and mean, what yes. I mean by that is not like get fancy. I mean like costumes and like mm-hmm. I like themed things. I like food to match. You know, the Michigan game. We're all wearing blue and whatever. <laughs> anyway, um, so every year I do a ugly Christmas sweater 5K run for my neighborhood, oh. and I invite my neighbors and we do this 5k everyone has to like dress up really ridiculous and we do the 5k run and we come back and we have hot cocoa and i give gnomes as as like prizes like best dressed person fastest person slowest person gets one (laughs) and it's so fun and we're doing it on thursday um because it's the last day of school for my kids they have like exams and stuff and so yeah i'm excited and it's really fun and i think this is my idea like do something for your neighborhood and just invite people and I don't know. It doesn't have to be a 5K run. It could just be like s'mores in my front yard or something.
0: That's a fun thing because it's the last day of school, which yeah. is a celebratory time. Yeah. Right. Kids are happy. Yep. Uh, parents are girding up their loins for a long two weeks. <laughs> um. You, but but this is like a make an event out of it.
3: Yeah, we're totally making an event out of it.
0: And then the gnomes are they are they um,
3: holiday themed? I'm sorry, Ben. Uh, are they Advent themed? But, no, I don't think gnomes are Advent okay. anything, but <laughs> uh, they're just from Target, you know. <laughs> Target <Gnomes>. themed. <Target-themed. laughs> but I'm excited. I think it'll be really fun. Hmm.
2: That's awesome. That is fun.
3: So, cool, Christy. And Ben, what have, what have you read? What's your idea? Uh, A recipe? I don't know.
2: I was just trying to decide what to share. Um, I, I have been reading um, very slowly. I've been reading this book uh, called The World Turned Upside Down by uh, – it's also an English ballad. I'm looking it up on the internet here because I don't have it in my office. Uh, I believe his name um, is Mortimer, Mortimer Kerfuffledink. No, I think it's Rutherford. Uh, no, I, I don't know what it is. Um, let's see here. Um, let me find it. Uh, i got to find it on the internet because it's, it's a history book. It's really fascinating. The world turned upside down. It's like a history of radical ideas uh, in the English Reformation.
3: Well, while you look that up, you know, I always pick a word every year. And like I'm getting to the point where I'm like, I need a new word for 2024. This past year's word was present, be present. Present. And I don't have a word for 2024. So maybe listeners, if you have listened to this and kindly want to suggest something... (laughs) Don't give all my help? weaknesses. Like,
2: <laughs> yeah, if you want, like, you're asking for a spiritual direction there. Almost people are like, kind
3: of yeah. You listen like,
2: to Christy. What, what do you think mean? Christy needs to hear? Right. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. I have God some this, ideas, yeah. but I I haven't landed yeah. yet. So yeah. okay, did you find the author?
2: I did. It's Christopher Hill. The World Turns Upside Down by Christopher Hill. Radical Ideas During the English revolu- Revolution, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it is um, it's a fascinating book uh, to read about some of the uh some of the things you didn't realize were happening it's like the super radical democratic ideas um that sort of almost took hold uh during the English revolution um but but eventually did not so for example this last uh chapter that i read was about how there were this super like uh democratic ideas taking root in the army and there was this theory this political theory that was emerging that it was like totally legit for the army to basically like an army, dic- a, a military dictatorship <laughs> could arise in the interest of the people and sort of overtake the nobility. And there was a lot because the army basically consisted of all of these sort of low people. I'm putting that in quotes, but that's kind of how they were referred to. Um, so anyway, but it almost took hold, but there was uh, treachery among the generals hmm. and uh, the, the sort of the officers who were leading the charge of this democratic equality, movement for equality, uh, among the classes, uh, was squelched because the officers were too trusting of the generals. Huh. And that was the end of that. This all happened with stuff like 1647, things like that. Anyway, if you like history, it's a fascinating account.
3: The world turned upside down.
2: The world turned upside down. English radical ideas during the English Revolution. Kay. Cool.
3: Well, today... Robin
2: Whitaker. Um, Yeah, we have an interview with Robin Whitaker, who is a professor. I forget where she teaches. Um, Somewhere in Australia, right? She is down under, yes. Yes, down under. Um, But anyway, this book is fascinating. This is part of our series on the Bible. Um, It's called Even the Devil Quotes Scripture. Reading the Bible on its own terms, um, I think one of the more one of the more fascinating uh, ideas in this book and in this interview is that we can, if we use, if we allow Scripture to teach us how to interpret Scripture, like how does Scripture use Scripture, and if we look at how Scripture uses Scripture, um, we can maybe understand how to understand what the Bible is and how to read it, and um, one of her main. Uh, takeaways is that uh, she no longer reads the Bible literally by and by 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 and large does not read the Bible literally but she takes it more seriously than she used to Hmm. because the the Bible doesn't take itself literally often (laughs) anyway so it's a fascinating interview some fascinating ideas I think uh for us to consider as we think about this during this series this um How do we interpret? How do we read the Bible? How do we interpret scripture? All right. How does God speak to us through this collection of texts? So yeah, should we get into it?
3: Let's do it.
2: Let's do it.
0: Robin Whitaker joins us today on the Gravity Podcast. She's the Associate Professor of New Testament Studies at the Pilgrim Theological College at the University of Divinity in Melbourne, Australia. She's an ordained minister in the Uniting Church in Australia and co-host of the By the Well podcast. She's authored numerous books, including Ekphrasis, Vision, and Persuasion in the Book of Revelation. And she joins us today to talk about her latest book, Even the devil quotes scripture, reading the Bible on its own terms. Robin, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thank you. Wonderful to be here with you both.
0: Yeah, thanks for making it work. I know with the time zone difference, it's tricky, so appreciate you getting up early to chat with us. Um, Maybe for listeners who aren't familiar with the Uniting Church, can you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, the Uniting Church is a a sort of a weird Australian thing um, about 45, 50 years ago, the Methodist, Presbyterian and Congregationalist denominations in Australia joined together to form the Uniting Church. And the uniting part is quite deliberate because the the whole kind of ethos is that we need to move towards more unity, not less In a world where denominations are often splitting, um, the Uniting Church is all about bringing Christians together. So, we come from those traditions. I grew up Methodist, charismatic Methodist in South Africa, but when we moved to Australia, we became Uniting Church, and that's the tradition I'm now ordained in. Yeah,
0: Yeah. well, that's a good maybe context or segue into this book that you've written. Uh, The Mm -hmm. Bible uh, and what we think about it and how we talk about it has often been used to delineate and sometimes even divide uh, between Christians. Mm. Um, so, what, what prompted you to write a book about Scripture? And maybe what about your faith and your journey makes mm. this a book that's prudent for you to write?
4: Yeah. I, so, having said that about being in the Uniting Church, which is a pretty mainstream leaning towards liberal denomination here in Australia, um, in my teenage years, I got highly involved in evangelical Christianity. So I went to a big Baptist church that at the time in Melbourne was the first of the kind of what we now call a mega church. It held the Hillsong-like band and the altar calls most weeks. Um, And um, that really set me on a path for a number of years of being in much more conservative evangelical world. So I was leading, you know, missions and scripture union and all that kind of stuff, um, campus ministry. And in that space, I really... Um, was exposed to a way of reading the Bible that I hadn't grown up with, which was very literalistic, almost fundamentalist. Um, you know, we memorized things, we proof texted to prove yep. that God was real yep. from the Bible, kind of thing. You, you, I think you you were all very familiar with that stuff. And then I had a sense of call to ministry, um, uh, you know, which surprised me because at the time I would have actually told you that God did not intend for women to be ordained or leaders. So God kind of messed up that little worldview. Um, and, um, and I went to seminary and had that view of scripture rapidly deconstructed and it was pretty painful. And, um, So in some ways this book, Mm. there were times writing it that felt a little bit like cathartic to my younger self. I think I say at one point these are the things I learnt in seminary I wish someone had told me sooner so it wasn't such a shock to be exposed to a scholarly approach to the Bible and the importance of history and context and understanding the language and all of that. Um, But I also wrote it because I keep meeting Christians who are like my younger self, who often find themselves in the Uniting Church having left. Uh, those very conservative uh, church traditions and they have a very high view of scripture. Yes. But they're deconstructing and they, uh, they want to know how to make sense of it. And, and the critique I make in the book as well is that sometimes us in the more sort of so-called liberal traditions don't um, perhaps take our scripture yeah. quite seriously enough that we actively teach people how to read it. We kind of assume you'll pick this up, you know, along the right. way, way from sitting in church or something. Um, mm-hmm. So I wrote it for the, for my younger self and for everyone I keep meeting who's a bit like me in the process of deconstructing yes. and reconstructing, Robin, that's really, reconstructing. That's really sweet.
0: I'm, I'm glad really you mentioned that. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people have mm-hmm. this notion that yes. scholars work on this objectively abstract plane of just seeking answers. But you named a couple things there. Like you're writing the book that you wish you had, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you're also sort of pursuing mm. the questions that no one pursued for you. And and so that it's like you're it's like you're 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 speaking to your younger self, but you're also mentoring mm. your your current self and and p- other people who are there with you. And so it's it's very there's like a pastoral heart here mm. in this kind of scholarly work.
4: Mm. Yeah, there is because this I mean this is it, particularly if you're in a Protestant tradition, right? The, the Bible is the center of our faith; it's the anchor point. And um, you know, if if we if we don't have some tools, I think some some and some freedom, some permission that you can ask questions of this text, that you can grapple with this text, um, that this is inviting you into conversation with God, not not a one way, you know, dictation kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think it is, it is pastoral. I think I, I hope it's helpful for people. I hope it's life-giving.
2: And now a word from a sponsor.
4: Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net
3: carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture.
2: All right, let's get back into our conversation. You know, in, in your book, you say that, um, in your intro, you say that you no longer read the Bible literally, mm. but you still take it seriously. Mm. And that you, you also say, it. in fact, it's impossible to read the Bible in a literal way. So I'm wondering if you can share a bit more about that distinction and then how you came to that conviction.
4: Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think when you're in that, that world of of needing the Bible to be a kind of a proof text and absolute authority as a fact, so I mean i my first degree was a science degree, and I remember being in evolution classes arguing with the professor that you know but the Bible says, you know I was that annoying college student um, and um And and part of reading, when you're trying to read it literally, we're trying to flatten everything, right? So we have two accounts of creation, a seven-day Genesis 1, and then we have an Adam and Eve story. They're doing very different things. They're both beautiful and profound in their own way. But if we try and kind of mush them together as if there's only one possible, literal, accurate description of how God made the world, which is not what I think these ancient Jews thought they were describing. They weren't describing the how. They were describing the why. Mm-hmm. Um, you immediately get contradictions. Um, you know, the world either starts as a watery place or it starts as a dry place. Like things are made in the opposite order. Like, but I think when you're in that world, my younger self would have I- ignored those differences because you're reading for consistency so you kind of skip right past those and, and find the similarities. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think it's impossible to maintain a, a literal view of Scripture because as, as we journey with Scripture, and some of it's over time and some of it's the changing context, and we can map this onto all sorts of things. In, in the book I talk about marriage, whether you can marry foreign women. This teaching changes even within the Old Testament, um, you know, because the context changes, so it's impossible to be entirely literal and, and consistently so. Um, the taking it seriously part is because I now think, and I, I don't mean this to be dismissive of um, you know people trying to read the Bible in that in that literal way, because I, I think it comes from a good place. It comes from a, a wanting to honor Scripture, um, but you know the 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 irony there is when we're reading it in such a way to fit our existing conceptions of it and often our existing yeah. conceptions of God, we're not actually honouring Scripture. We're finding what we want to find in the text. Mm. Um, and so I think to take it seriously is to sit with the contradictions and to sit with the things that challenge us
1: yeah. and the
4: puzzles and let them kind of shape us and wrestle with them and all of that, that for me is the serious part. We're actually letting God do some work by disrupting us (laughs) a bit (laughs) or a lot.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that distinction, Robin, because, um, you know, the subtitle of your book is like reading the Bible on its own terms, and I think that that's got to be part of what it means instead of trying to make the Bible into something that I wish it was mm. that more clearly articulated the theology that I would like to, you know, see mm. um, we have to honor the Bible for the thing it is, which, yeah. you know, it, in a lot of ways it, it's frustrating, you know, it's like a, it's like a, a, a very weird, mysterious text, mm-hmm. you know, yep. that that I think you you have to, yeah, you have to take it on its own terms and, And it's actually a funny claim as well. I was just thinking about this, like, to to claim that God speaks to us through this text, you know, Mm -hmm. that God somehow interacts with us through this text. It's actually a really complex claim. (laughs) It's not clear. It's not like a rule book. It's a story. And it's, you know, laws and it's letters. And anyway, so there's a lot going on here, but
4: no I agree and and it's not to say God can't speak to us through this text, of course, God does, but perhaps not in that sort of i think I think what I was taught is you know there was a funny thing in my conservative youth where you know God spoke to you directly through the Bible, and then the way you spoke to God was prayers that were kind of at God, where you just did all the talking. <laughs> I've now learned <laughs> right. that prayer is much more about sitting and listening um, yeah. but um you know I think the Bible, yeah we are one of the ways I try and talk with students about the Bible is we're listening in on a conversation that generations before us have had about what's going on in the world and where God is in it and they're trying to make sense of it. And and we get to kind of enter into that. So it's, it's yes, I don't want to say there's no divine inspiration and that that's a loaded word <laughs> we might want to unpack, but it's also deeply human. We're, we're getting to journey with other humans who are grappling over the same questions we're grappling with. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's really good. I think we've talked in this series already about how um, many Christians approach the Scripture with what it must be, and I think you're approaching mm-hmm. Scripture on what does the Scripture purport to do and be, and how do we meet mm-hmm. Scripture on Scripture's terms, which is, I think, a, mm-hmm. a more faithful reception of these ancient documents, right, that are strange and mysterious. Yeah. Um, you you talked a little bit about how we got our Bible and how different traditions have different Bibles. Um and then you talk about translations. And I think, um, I, I I find it difficult as a pastor to talk about translations, and here's why, Robin, and I wonder if you can help us with this. Um, I, I am very aware of all the issues I have with various translations, right? So the most popular translation, NIV, that a lot of people in the West use, I've got, I don't know, I've got a catalog of issues I have with that. So how <laughs> do you go about talking about the issues surrounding various translations. Um, Do you have one you prefer? And how do you talk about these issues in a way that doesn't erode people's confidence in the translation they read? You know? Oh,
4: that's a great question. And it is tricky and complex, as you say. It's um, my preferred translation these days, and this is the one my denomination tends to use, is the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. And that's partly that um, one of the deliberate decisions that translation has made, and and every translation makes some kind of key decisions, Mm. is where we get the word brothers in Greek, they have translated that brothers and sisters on on the assumption that this was just standard language like not so long ago and still in some parts of the world. If you addressed a crowd, you'd say men, men even if there were women in the crowd. So the NRSV has tried to sort of add a sense of inclusion based on um, really what we know historically about the way some of these terms worked, except where it's clearly a scene where Jesus is only addressing men and there's only a handful of those, for example. Um, One of the things I think people don't realise is every translation has a shape and a bias to it. So the obvious example is something like the um, ESV, which is used yeah. in a lot of conservative churches. That was deliberately created to um, yeah. really re-inscribe gender roles into the text. Um, yeah. You know, so uh, you know the best advice I can be is I can give is probably that it's helpful for people to have a couple of Bibles yeah. handy um, to actually compare translations. I mean, I make my students do this, including some of the new ones, David Bentley Hart's New Testament. I love Robert Alter's Old Testament or Hebrew Bible translation. Um, Even Tom Wright, who I don't agree with everything he says, but his New Kingdom translation of the New Testament. It's just helpful to, again, it disrupts our familiarity with the the text. But, I mean, I think the key thing when I talk about translation I want people to realise is you are already reading someone else's interpretation. So we cannot avoid, you know, it cuts against that sense of, well, I'm just reading the text, me and God, plain sense reading. As soon as we're reading in English or whatever your native tongue is, if it's not ancient Greek or Hebrew, you're reading somebody's translation and that means you're reading somebody's interpretation. They've already made some decisions for you about what words mean. It's just unavoidable, I think, and it's not a bad thing. It's... Yeah, and what we're supposed to right.
0: do. And even the manuscripts yeah, we have, of, the extent of manuscripts of in Greek and Hebrew are also translations. Mm. Um, meaning interpretations because of the diversity yeah. of these right. manuscripts we have. We know that they're that they're doing the same thing that our translations are doing today, they're interpreting as they copy and translate.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we know we have ancient translations um, where scribes have changed a word, thinking they're fixing an error or correcting it in some way. There's a little note in the margins or there's a word changed. I mean, and again, this is the kind of thing that blew my mind when I first learnt it. I, I don't know where I'd got the idea from, but I'd somehow sort of thought that we had one kind of pure Bible to use really problem that had been down. And then you discover there are literally thousands and thousands of ancient manuscripts. And so again, the Bible we have in our our modern Bibles are made up of scholarly decisions about which manuscripts are the best. And there's a whole lot of criteria for that. And, and sometimes making tough decisions about what you include and what, what you don't. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I wonder if we could talk about that for a little bit, because that you know, a lot of ma- a lot is made of of that kind of thing: edits in the text, contradictions, mm. you know, so to speak, in scripture, discrepancies between manuscripts, um, and a lot of people they th- they lose their faith because of this because they mm. had the same assumption that you had that the Bible had somehow been you know, beamed down. I think that's the first I've heard that, but you know, it it wasn't delivered from heaven. It was written by humans. And so how, like, um, and you talk about another way though, instead of sort of saying, well, I guess the Bible isn't inspired and it's not from God and it's a purely human book and we can glean nothing, you know, for our faith from this book, you talk about another way to approach these apparent contradictions and these rewrites. Um, that actually increases our ability to receive and appropriate these texts as inspired. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that for our listeners.
4: Yeah, I'm trying to remember what I actually wrote on that point <laughs> in the book. But, um, I mean, the pastoral response, you know, if, if someone's asking this as a genuine question where it's, it's, it is upsetting to their faith to learn this stuff, that the pastoral response is, I think we can trust God and the Holy Spirit to have worked through people. So even in the human messiness and the human involvement in this text, and we know humans are imperfect beings and we're all culturally bound and shaped, um, we can trust that God does wonderful things through human beings, including the scriptures we have. Um, And that real discernment, you know, and a dash of politics and other things, but real discernment went into um, the shaping of the canon to give us the Bible that we now have. Um, I'm not sure, Ben. If there was something else to your question that I've missed or forgotten that I wrote about.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think um, th- you already re- referenced like Genesis. Um, Genesis one and two have mm. uh, apparent contradictions, and I think mm. um, the the normal way of dealing with that, which you mentioned before, is sort of to just filter out those. Right? You know, when 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 were animals yeah. and plants created? What day? What day did that happen? Those kinds of things, um, and I think. Yeah. Uh, you also talk about like how you mentioned like um, f- foreign marriage, like it's at one point, mm. at one point it's not allowed. And then another point it is allowed. W- what is the way, um, if we don't see that as a correction or as mm. a mistake that is now fixed, how do we, how do we see that? How do we make mm. room, hold space for that?
4: I think this is where context is so important and that the context in which we read any passage. So, um, you know, to use an example that might be really familiar to your listeners, we have four Gospels, right? And and when you try and read to make them all the same, you notice the similarities. It tells the same basic Jesus story. Um, But when we pull them apart and actually start to notice the subtle differences in the way they tell the Jesus story, um, and there are contradictions there in John's Gospel, Jesus goes to Jerusalem several times, in the others, he only goes once and it's when he goes to die. Um, when when we start to notice the differences, I think it enriches our theological possibilities that emerge from the text. So we start to see that, um, you know, something like Mark's gospel gives us this absolute stark sense of why Jesus died. It's a total abandonment by everyone all the disciples flee. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, Mark leaves us in this kind of dark, bereft state where the suffering of Jesus is psychological as much as physical, and, and it does some profound work. We sit with the cross. You get to something like um, John's Gospel, and, and the cross is the point of glory. I mean, when Jesus is held up on the cross, it, it's, it's done, you know, it's like this is what I came for, to be hung on a cross. Yes. And it's the moment of Jesus' most peak Christness. ness um, And then Luke does something different. Jesus dies an innocent man like a martyr and the po- the whole point is he's resurrected. He's vindicated by God. This has a different theological flavour. It talks about the defeat of death and sin and injustice by God. So I think when we tease apart and notice what each author's doing and, and with the Older Testament, um, a lot of that is contextual. We have texts that are sometimes written hundreds of years apart or shaped over time. We can see that there's a, 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 a purpose, I think. You know, I think it, in, in, it increases, or at least for me, it increases meaning. It increases the beauty of the text um, and, and the theological possibilities instead of flattening it to one, one story or one, one way of interpreting something like Jesus' death. We'll be right back. The Gravity Podcast
3: is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, a 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation where you'll learn to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life God shares with us. It's a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying new practices. In the Gravity Formation Course, We go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence. And to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us towards holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people all over the world in this formation framework, and it has helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives, to learn, how to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com/slash formation.
0: Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I think there's a lot of listeners right now who yearn and long to to see tensions or disagreements in that way as a harmonious sort of polyphonic witness versus mm. how we've sort of been indoctrinated to see that as, um, you know, kind of like, um, you know, the, the 19-year-old scientific Robin point of view, you know, where <laughs> yeah. that, that leads to um, scientific incorrectness. Um, yeah. You, you know, as Christians, we, we have, and you talk about this in your book, about how Jesus is sort of our lens or our guide. Um, Mm-hmm. as um as the Word of God, he helps us understand the Word of God and interpret the Word of God. And one of the things I've noticed in our audience, and I think Ben and I have related this too, is there's a way of there's a way of asserting that that leads to supersessionist or anti-Semitic readings mm-hmm. where we're dismissive of any reading apart from Christ, meaning any other, like a Jewish person reading the Jewish, the, the Hebrew mm. scriptures, we're dismissive of that. Can you talk a bit, Robin, maybe, maybe help us, how do we hold the primacy or the centrality of Jesus as we read the scriptures, mm. but not fall into supersessionist or anti-Semitic readings?
4: Yeah, this is a great question. And I confess it's one I continue to struggle with. I think we're so shaped by our Christian tradition that we have to quite consciously – Particularly if you're preaching and and you know leading communities, be quite conscious of the way um, we sometimes actually use use the language in the New Testament. Um, and you know, and we have stories in the Gospels where Jesus calls Pharisees hypocrites. We forget that this is a kind of internal dialogue. You know, that this is a Jew talking to other Jews as they debate the law, and in its context. People use these very inflammatory rhetorical ways of speaking. Um, it's hyperbole. Um, when we put it into the mouths of Christians in dominant cultures, it, it obviously has a very different resonance. Um, so we have to do some unlearning. Um, I think my, my struggle is or, or one of the things I do is when I'm, when I'm reading the Hebrew Bible or Older Testament, I always try and start with just what's going on there, like almost bracket out Jesus you know, what's going on, what's the context, what's the theology, um, so that I'm not reading Jesus in too quickly because this is what Christians do. Everything points to Christ. Well, maybe Isaiah's suffering servant was about a kind of leadership and a hope for a figure that would emerge from that community. Later, Christians who write the Gospels would frame Jesus in that way, but that doesn't mean it's the only way to read that text. So, again, it's a not flattening out by reading Jesus into everything and saying what else could be going on here? What are the other theological possibilities? Um, but it's a tension because I also, there's a long Christian tradition of reading Christologically, reading all of Scripture as pointing to Christ, yes, and, yes. and I don't want to dismiss that tradition, but it is a very Christian tradition and we need to be so careful Um it helps if we remember that Jesus Christ always was a Jew and never yes. stopped being a Jew, and said things as a Jew and behaved like a Jew of his time. Um, I think that hopefully mitigates, as was Paul, as as were all our New Testament authors. Right? I don't think there's a single writer of the New Testament who was not Jewish. Yeah, there's some debate about a couple, but yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's I think that's helpful, Rob, and I think also something that what you said may remind me of is that we, we are prone in the West enlightenment kind of rationalistic mm. modern people to absolutist mm. readings, meaning yes. this is the meaning. And one of the ways I think right. I've learned to push back against anti-Semitic or supersessionist readings is to learn from Jewish people how to read the scriptures, yes. which is to yeah. enjoy and relish and, and, um, and participate in creative, multi- layered readings, right? Um, And to hold them all together.
4: Yes. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think people know this if they they just reflect on it, you know, the fact that we can return to the same Bible passage throughout our lives as Christians Mm -hmm. and it speaks to us differently Mm -hmm. is testimony to this multi-layered, you know, that the passages can mean multiple things and they... Um, one of the words I, I think there's a couple of words I probably use a lot in the book, and one of them is curiosity and the other one is conversation. If if we enter these stories, particularly the difficult stories with curiosity and ask, you know, kind of why might someone have done that? Why would you tell this story? I mean, why? there's a lot of terrible stories about people behaving badly in the Bible. Why keep this in there? You know, mm-hmm. why include the contradictions? You you know mm-hmm. you've just contradicted some earlier law. Um so, so be curious and then allow, you know, we kind of enter the conversation, we let the scripture read us um, yeah. in that it, it invites us to kind of go, well, who might I be in this story? Am I like, you know, mm-hmm. the jealous older brother? Who am I resentful of? Like if, if we read it, it's almost a spiritual um, conversational reading that invites us to think of us being in conversation with ancient Jews and Christians and with God as we, as yeah. we sit with the text and that rarely yeah. leads to one answer, you know, it's
2: like. right. Yeah. I'm just struck by, you know, coming back to, you know, those of us who preach or, you know, listen to sermons, like even that there's the assumption behind the fact that like, once I preach a text, I don't have my sermon for that text. Right. You mm. know what I mean? Like if the text comes around three years from now, because it's yes. an electionary, I preach a new sermon Why? Because I'm a new person and my congregation is different and different things are happening in the world. Like we we preach differently and we read devotionally in those ways. And in some ways, Mm -hmm. I'm just struck by how we, even the most conservative uh, folks who say things about the Bible that, you know, we're saying on this podcast aren't true. Even they like assume this about the Bible when they go to preach, I would assume.
4: Yeah, exactly. That it speaks to certain communities in certain ways. Yeah. you know, around whatever's going on in our lives. And, and, and the Bible itself models that when it, when it updates or retells stories, it's modeling right. exactly that it's modeling right. that we need one of the ways of honoring scripture. And it seems somewhat pa- paradoxical is to update and reinterpret it so that it addresses the new context and, yeah. and what's going on in that place.
2: Yeah.
4: And, and there's countless examples of that throughout the scriptures. Yeah,
2: yeah that's so true. Um, well, maybe uh, as we uh, turn towards maybe bringing the interview to a close here, um, mm. you end your book with two chapters on love. Mm. Um, love as the hermeneutical key uh, <laughs> and the telos of reading scripture um, for mm. us as uh, people of faith is to be more at home in God's love. So I, I wonder if you can just talk a bit, you know, wide-rangingly uh, yeah. about that. What's at stake for us in love being the hermeneutical key to the scriptures? Um what do, and what do we gain if we read through and for love
4: mm. yeah I, I I begin the book early talking about how the Bible has and can be weaponized right and there are there are contemporary examples of this all over the place um it, it's doing the social media rounds but recently Netanyahu quoted first Samuel 15 I don't know if you saw that
0: I did about the Amalekites. And,
4: yeah. yeah and and destroying and and you know so there are there are so many examples of people taking you know a verse out of scripture removed from its context and and what you know what it's doing in that literary and historical context and just applying it in a blanket way and sometimes in ways that are deeply problematic and and are, and are justifying be it violence be it bigotry etc mm. so you know I looked at the New Testament because Jesus in the New Testament is an interesting figure in that he sometimes – we like to make Jesus as this good guy who, you know, fought against the legalism. Well, sometimes Jesus is very legalistic, right? (laughs) Read Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. He he increases the ethical demands of the law. He says, don't just not murder your brother, don't hate your brother, right? So there are times Jesus is – Almost very conservative in terms of his application of the law. And there are times that he bursts it right open and says, mercy is more important than Sabbath or whatever. Um, So I tried to read for what's the what's the ethic that underlies all of this? And it is that love God, love your neighbor. That's repeated everywhere in the New Testament. It's become a dominant ethic in Judaism at this time. Jesus didn't invent it. Let's not be supersessionist here. Um, It already exists in Judaism. The fact that when Jesus says that or in, in one of the Gospel versions, um, the lawyer says that and Jesus agrees, this is the point of agreement yes. between Jews that are fighting, right, about what the law means. Um, and and I think if we read with love, it stops us hopefully using the Bible in, in, to ends that, that contradict itself, you know, to, to violence, to bigotry, to judgment. Um, leave the judgment to God. That's that's not our that's not our human um, calling. And you know, and so I, I quote Augustine. I'm, I you know I, I came to this through reading the New Testament. But you know, I'm not the first person to think like this. And and Augustine talks about the goal of all scriptures is love. And if you interpret it in a way that doesn't lead to more love of God and neighbor, go back and rethink. You know, um, and love love is a tricky. Uh, yeah. it's a, and, you know, it means different things to different it's a slippery people. Word.
0: It's word, yeah.
4: It is. It's culturally bound. What looks loving in one family might not look loving in another. But I think love in action in the Gospels is, is mercy, it's compassion, it's action towards the other. So we can ground it in those sorts of behaviours. And if we interpret to those ends, it's going to at least stop us doing harm with this text, which I think is so antithetical to the gift That the Bible is to use it to harm someone. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question, but that. So I I try and model a kind of a reading for love. That again, take even the most difficult and challenging scripture. If we read with love, we're reading with compassion. We're reading with empathy. We're trying to put ourselves in the position of Mm -hmm. others in the text, and again, just letting it kind of sit with us and shape us and and challenge us, hopefully.
2: Yeah, I think that's so helpful, Robin. Because uh, like people who have come out of the backgrounds that we have and that you have,
4: mm.
2: and a lot of our listeners do, um, I think there is this knee jerk when it's time to read the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> like there's all these like habits of interpretation, and all this like all this stuff comes online for people. Yeah. And I think a lot of what comes online for people is that curiosity, empathy love, like all of that stuff is ruled out. And there's a fear that takes over that says, what I'm reading for is to make sure I get this right. Yes. Right? Like the the stakes are eternal and I'm going to go to hell or send somebody else Mm -hmm. to hell if I don't get this right. And so we read not for love, we read for rightness. We read for correctness and we we think that that's the point. And so I appreciate that word because I think it gives us permission to say, no, actually like this... You know, the Bible actually reveals this to us, right? That Mm. um, we can read for and unto love. And and it's perfectly legitimate. It actually opens things up for us maybe in a new way.
4: And it points us towards the other. I mean, in what you were Mm -hmm. describing, that fear, Ben, I mean, that becomes all about us, right? And our personal salvation, right? It's an incredibly individualistic way to read. I think love points us outwards into Mm. community with others, points us towards God, um it's a ver it's a fundamentally different posture towards yeah. the text, yeah and towards yeah. faith yeah.
0: yeah it's impossible to go through all the um various topics you cover here, Robin, and not only the difficult contradictions or or tensions in the text to also the ways the Bible gets weaponized against marginalized communities um and how mm. it plays into um, you know, marginalizing the LGBT community and, and women, mm. et cetera, even in translation, which you reference, but also in interpretation. So um, mm. the book is a gift. I appreciate Robin, you learning in public, meaning writing the book you needed maybe a while back, but that we, <laughs> uh, many of us need today. So thank you for that work. What are you up to now? What are you uh, working on or releasing soon?
4: Oh, I just finished writing Revelation for Normal People. So the book of Revelation is my first academic love. Um, <laughs> speaking yeah. of texts that work in multiple layers in yeah. complex ways. Yeah. Yeah, um, for sure. So for the Bible for Normal People series, I've just written the, the Revelation for Normal People. So that will be out in the next month. Um, I'm writing some stuff around the violence of hell. For a, There's a whole series coming around around, around the Bible and violence. Um, So there's some really interesting work happening um, out of the Shiloh Project. If people want to Google that, you'll you'll find stuff online around um, the violence of Scripture. So those are a couple of projects um, or have been working on and will be working on.
0: That's exciting. You know, most of the people that listen to our podcast are normal people. So we may have to have you back on (laughs) to talk about uh, Revelation. I I think it's one of the books that we get the most questions about because it's one of the books that's been weaponized, like you've said. Yeah. to justify things like, ironically enough, violence. Um, yes. yeah. The book again we're talking about today, Even the Devil Quotes Scripture, reading the Bible on its own terms. Robin, thanks for joining us today.
4: Thank you so much.
2: That was fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Robin's great. I wanted her to lead like a little Bible study because she's got these different topics she covers in the book, um, mm-hmm. and I always feel like you you want we want the listener to get a sense of the book and and benefit from yeah. Robin. And she talked about some things here that she didn't really talk about in her book, but there's so many great little nuggets, I guess you could say, you know, mm-hmm. little little uh, excursions that she takes that are just fun.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, we did get a question recently as we're recording this. We got a question recently from someone who was asking for that. They were asking for, they had listened to the Chris Green interview that started this whole series. And they were asking about, you know, how do you, like, like, I believe you, you know, (laughs) that it's Mm -hmm. possible to read the scriptures in a new way, but like, how do you do it? Like, give me an example. Um, And I think that's, it it is indicative of how difficult this can be. I think, I think we're giving our listeners permission, um, but it does take some handlebars sometimes to say, well, what do I do with the book of revelation? Or what do I do with, you know, these texts that have always meant this, you know, for me and for my community and, and, you know, like I can't read them in any other way. What do I do? How do I, how do I break out of this and and break into some curiosity about the text? Um, Yeah. So yeah, I want to do more of that as well on this series.
0: Yeah, me too. We actually had a, a listener call in um, after listening to one of the episodes, uh, the one with Chris Green, and she said, hey, uh, I would love to hear, like, how do you read Scripture like this? Like, how would I read <sighs> yeah. Scripture like, like origin? How would I read Scripture like Robin was talking about, like, mm-hmm. like cr- being curious and, and creative in listening to texts that really bother us? So maybe we'll uh, have to do that here on a later episode.
2: Yeah, I think it might be fun it'd be fun. I ben. always, lis- I always love listening to uh, people that have different accents than I do too. So <laughs> I, l- I love a good Australian accent.
0: So Would you like me to talk in accents from now?
2: No, I don't want you to try that.
0: I so. can do six or seven really bad accents.
2: Mm-hmm. No, oh, yeah, I thought I'm about not. it, but no.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I gave you some time just to mm-hmm. ruminate. Just to see yeah. if you're sure. Uh, before it. we leave, I have a question for you. What is the scariest plant in the forest?
2: The Venus flytrap. Those things no. look scary to me.
0: No, okay. it's bamboo.
2: Bamboo. Nice, nice.
0: <laughs> not bamboo. bamboo. Bamboo.
2: Yeah, it's very good. It's very on I'm topic. As we're, re- we're releasing this probably not until December, but as we're recording it, friends, it's the day before Halloween. So, it it's
1: on
0: my mind on topic. I'm telling you yep. if you got a 4, 5 or 6 year old that joke will kill
2: mm-hmm. save it you save will it slay. for next Halloween Listen. you'll slay with that joke Save it. No,
0: <laughs> 4, 5 and 6 year olds they don't care when you say it they love it
2: okay well good you can try it out today then yeah try it out today see you everybody yeah. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you'd tell your friends about it.
3: Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.
0: Joining our Gravity community is free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash
2: join. Our show is produced by Ben Sternkey and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the podcast, and you can check out his work at aaronsternke.com.
3: We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start record button.
0: You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.
4: As the new year unfolds, make it a year of comfort and indulgence with Minky Couture. Wrap yourself in the lap of luxury with our exquisite blankets. Picture the cozy moments, the warmth of our premium materials, and the stylish designs that define Minky Couture. Welcome the new year with the ultimate in comfort and sophistication. January is your month to embrace luxury. Visit MinkyCouture.com or your nearest store today. Elevate your comfort, elevate your style
3: with Minky Couture.